it changed my life and changed my haircut. One guest, 10 songs, 10 reasons. Music was my first love on Radio Glamorgan. My guest on this edition of Music Was My First Love is a Cumbran-born politician who has been the Member of Parliament for Cardiff West since 2001. He's a member of the Digital, Culture, Media and Sport Select Committee. In the last Labour government, he was a Minister in the Department for Business, Innovation and Skills, having previously been a Minister in the Department for Children, Schools and Families and also in the Cabinet Office. In December 2021, my guest presented his copyright rights and remuneration of musicians' private members' bill to Parliament. He is a member of the Musicians' Union, the Ivers Academy and of the parliamentary rock band MP4. He recently released his debut solo album. In 2010, he became the first MP to win the British Computer Society's Social Media MP of the Year Award, beating Nick Clegg and Jeremy Corbyn, who both finished as runners-up. I'm talking about Kevin Brennan MP, and we'll hear from Kevin after his first choice, the title track from his debut album, The Clown and the Cigarette. Where did all that innocence go when we entered this lifelong fancy dress show? Kevin Brennan MP, welcome to Radio Glamorgan's Music was my first love. Thank you. That's, I heard that for the first time a couple of days ago when you sent me a song list through, and it's beautiful. So tell me about your first choice of track from your own album. Well, thank you very much. It is from my own album. It's a song that I wrote about a photograph I found in a drawer at my mother's house of my sister, Nula, who sings on the track as well, uh, and myself as children in a, in, a, in a children's fancy dress competition. My mother had made us costumes. Mine was a clown, and my sister, Nula, was dressed as a bunny girl selling cigarettes right uh it made me think times have changed perhaps yeah <laughs> a little bit since then and and also the, you know, to reflect upon the innocence of that uh you know and and life's journey and that's really it's a it's a country song it's the classic three chords and the truth and i'm glad you liked it has anyone um ever told you that you sound a little bit like paul heaton of beautiful south they have. I can't hear it myself, but you are not the first, second or third person to say that yeah, to me. And, so, uh, and lyrically as well. Are you, a, are you a fan of his? Or is it just sheer coincidence? I, I'm not a particular fan of The Beautiful South or Paul Heaton, though I think he's a great guy. But I, I, I was never a big consumer of their music. So I know, I know their hits, but I, yeah. I wouldn't you know, be familiar with the deep cuts. Although I did see him get his uh, lifelong achievement Ivan Novello Award this year, and he yeah. made the funniest speech I think uh, <laughs> I've ever heard. But I am interested, as I as obviously he is, in the idea of telling a story in a three-minute song. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and and in that respect, I can see why people see the similarity. Although I think musically he's a little bit different. Have you always been a music lover? Yes, I have. You know, ever since I was a, a small child, um, my parents my father was Irish my mother's Welsh and my parents always loved music and my father often would have people over in the house and we'd all be expected to you know gather around the crate of light ale and uh, mm. uh, and stand on it and, and give a song from quite a young age and um, and my sister Nula always wanted to have a guitar and because she was had a birthday on Christmas Day, she was able to get a slightly more expensive present, so she managed to get a guitar, and, and, and I kind of picked it up from her 
And later my father turned up with a piano I think they were throwing out of the working men's club and mm. put it in the front room and I, I started messing about on that. So it was, it was always a, a musical household. You started out as a journalist uh, when you came out of university, then went on as a teacher. Having worked in journalism, does it, does it give you a more sympathetic bend when, as a politician, you're being pressed and hounded by a journalist? It gave me a, a good insight into the clashes that they, you can have between you know, journalists and, and politicians because you know, I had to write stories. I, was, I remember the, young, uh, the Labour Party quite young and I, I had to write stories that were critical of the Labour Council and they didn't always like it, even though I was a... Labour Party member. So I think it did give me a little bit of an insight into the different roles and have some sympathy for journalists whose job it is to, if they're good journalists, to tell the story as they see it. Although obviously there are other types of journalists who are there to pursue an agenda rather than just pursue the truth. And and then why the teaching? Was there a, a fascination with that? I, I spent some time, I suppose, looking for a, a proper job, really. I, I think I realised I didn't really want to be a journalist, and uh, I trained as a, a teacher and did that for 10 years, um, mainly at Radha Comprehensive School in Cardiff, and I really enjoy teaching, and it's a great privilege to work with young people, but it's a tough job, you know, and it's a wearing job, it's a job you have to take home with you, mm. uh, and politics, I suppose, was always in my blood, and if you spoke to people who knew me when I was a kid in school, or indeed people I worked with in teaching, they probably wouldn't be surprised that I ended up doing what I do now. Now, I'm going to step back a little bit, um, because earlier this evening, uh, you sent me through uh, your mobile number and your picture on WhatsApp um, is on University Challenge. What was that experience like for a young student? It was great fun, actually, because it was back in the days of Bamba Gascoigne. Yeah. So it was recorded up at uh, Granada Television in, uh, in Manchester, and uh, so a bunch of us went up on a coach to uh, to Manchester, a group of students you can imagine, and uh, we, we took some supporters with us, and uh, and they sort of paid our expenses. So for for poor students, it was <laughs> it was it was great fun, and we actually had two visits there because we won two rounds right. in uh, University Challenge and then lost the third one. So we didn't get through to the knockout stage. That's the way it worked back in those days. It was Sunday afternoon television, but for many years afterwards, if I was in a pub in Cumbran, um, inevitably, uh, if you went to the loo and you know had a pee, someone would sidle up next to you and say, um, "What's Bamba like then?" You know, because Bamba Gascoigne was the presenter, yeah. the sort of famous TV figure. But um, it was a it was a fun experience. Strange things people want to talk about in the toilet. Yeah, it could have been worse. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I'm sure it won't surprise you to know uh, that after five years. Uh, of this series, your next choice is from uh, the most chosen recording artist on music was my first love. But first time for this song, so tell me about uh, I saw her standing there for the Beatles. Uh, yes, I've chosen the Beatles probably you know for the same reason lots of other people did. In my case, as a very young kid, you know they were absolutely ubiquitous in my life. You know as we had Beatle mugs and Beatle wigs as as little kids. Um, but later on, when I uh, was just got involved in a, in a rock band as a member of Parliament, which was not something I'd expected to do. Hmm. Um, this was uh, one of the numbers that's always in our repertoire. And I can tell you, even though it was never an A-side for the Beatles, which is probably why it's not been chosen, perhaps, before by your many guests, um, it is a guaranteed floor filler if you play it live. And I, uh, I know perhaps some of the people uh, listening to tonight's show might be 
bedridden or maybe might not be able to get up and dance, but they'll find it tough when they listen to this one. One, two, three, five! You mentioned earlier uh, that many people that, that knew you when you were younger wouldn't be surprised that you're doing what you're doing now. So where did the interest in politics come from? I suppose I grew up in Cumbran. My mother, uh, my mother's brothers and her father were all coal miners from Nantaglow. Uh, and my father was uh, very interested in politics. I'm not, sure he was all, I'm not sure he always voted Labour, mind you. I think he was sometimes... Um, uh, a bit of a floating voter and a working class Tory occasionally, but he worked in Clanwern Steelworks. So we had very lively discussions hmm. about politics uh, in the home. And um, I suppose that got my interest going. And, uh, you know, as a bright young working class kid, you know, taking an interest in the news. Uh, and I think it was probably around the time of the miners' strike in 1974, um, around the time of the Ted Heath government, when I was a, a young teenager, that it really got me. Uh, interested in politics. Your your political career, if I'm right, started at council level. How how different is local government to, to what you're doing now? Um, yeah, it is very different in the sense that you're not necessarily you know full time in that you are working in a in a day job. So I was a teacher while I was on Cardiff City Council, which mm-hmm. I was on for ten years. Uh, some of the time I did later go on and move into working in politics for Rodri Morgan, but. Uh, it, it's um, it's very much a, a, a grassroots thing, but ultimately all politics is local, as the famous Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives, Tip O'Neill, once said. And it's the same if you're on the council or if you're a member of parliament. You do need to be aware of what's happening in your constituency and represent your constituents to the best of your ability if you're going to do a good job as a politician. Uh, so it's just uh, you're, you're just painting on a larger canvas, I suppose, in the House of Commons than you might be on the City Council. But ultimately, you're doing the same thing, which is trying to bring about change for the better and represent people effectively. Your next choice is, uh, for me, from one of our finer songwriters. And if there is one song from his back catalogue that proves that, it's this one. You are Gilbert Sullivan fan, or is it this particular song, or a bit of both? Well, a bit of both, uh, in the sense that I think you're absolutely right. I think... Gilbert O'Sullivan is one of our greatest and most underrated mm-hmm. songwriters. And, um, but one of the reasons I'd chosen this was it was actually, I think, if my memory's right, the first single I bought with my own money as a young lad. And I remember taking my 10 shillings, I suppose it was at the mm. time, or had decimalization occurred, I can't remember, it might <laughs> be 50p, uh, to buy this record because I'd heard it on the radio and possibly seen it on top of the pops where you had this odd urchin-like Im- image at the time, Gilbert mm. O'Sullivan, that he'd adopted, which possibly you know, cost him the title of being one of our greatest songwriters because maybe he wasn't taken as seriously as he should have been. Yeah. But uh, it's an extraordinary song. And I, in later life, listening back to it, I've wondered whether him being Irish, his Catholic upbringing the sort of guilt that's throughout the song in the in the lyrics um, that, that, that comes through of a, of a young boy, you know, relating to um, his parents and trying to do the right thing, whether that may have subconsciously appealed to me at the time. But it's also a beautiful melody and just a, a great example of a singer-songwriter at his absolute peak. Nothing old, nothing new, nothing ventured. Nothing further than proof, nothing 
older than you, nothing older than time, nothing sweeter than wine, nothing physically, recklessly, hopelessly blind, nothing I couldn't say, nothing why cost today, nothing right. Kevin Brennan's third choice on this edition of Music Was My First Love from the great Gilbert O'Sullivan. Now, I want to jump ahead a little bit. In 2005, uh, you became a whip in Tony Blair's government. Um, and I'm interested to know, do you have to be... Um, it's going to sound terribly rude if the answer is yes, but do you have to be a certain breed to be a whip, or is the media portrayal a bit unfair? I think it can be a bit misleading, and I think it actually differs somewhat between the Labour Party and the Conservative Party about how uh, we we go about things. When I, when I was a, in a member of the government whips, we actually uh, had two chief whips, both of whom were 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 women and it, it kind of felt a bit more like being in, in the HR department a little bit, uh, you know, human resources mm. rather than uh, in some kind of military setup. But I think the, uh, where people are bullied and so yeah. on, but I think in the Conservatives they do tend, in my observation, for what it's worth from the outside, to, to be a bit more hierarchical and sort of um, militaristic about the whole thing. But the, ultimately your job as a whip, obviously, is to secure the government's business if you're in government and to make sure you've got the numbers to get um, the bills and the votes that the, that the government needs to win through. And so you talk to the group of colleagues that are in your flock and if they've got a problem, then you discuss it with them and usually it's not through bullying and threats, it's through um, you know trying to persuade them but also trying to get them uh, you know, a chance to discuss what concerns they have with the, the ministers involved, etc. Um, you know, but ultimately, um, that's what the job's about. So the, the media portrayal, you know, can be a bit exaggerated sometimes. Um, there's a great play called This House, um, which was done at the National Theatre and, and, and beyond, um, which is about the Whip's office in the 1970s, at a very difficult time for the then Labour government, who mm. hardly had a majority if, if they did. Uh, and I think it, it's a pretty good and accurate portrayal of, of um, what it's like to be in the whip's office. I, I remember uh, some years ago with John Major's government when they had uh, many a vote over Maastricht and things were tight. In fact, I seem to remember they ended up with a tie. Um, but the, the reporter on whatever news program I was watching was saying that, that uh, the, the government whips were frog-marching people to, to go into the correct lobby, what they perceived as the correct lobby. Yeah, I mean, what is true is that when you vote in the House of Commons, you do actually physically, you know, walk into a corridor. Yeah. And so it's if you're going to vote against your own side, you can't just push a button. You actually have to walk into the lobby yeah. with the other side. Um, so it's quite a big thing to do if, you, if you're voting against your own side. I, I've done it a couple of times myself. I did it over the Iraq war. For example, but but infrequently because I think you are elected as a you know I'm elected as a Labour MP. But on matters of conscience, I think it's different mm. uh, and it's understood. So it's a big thing to do. Um, on the other hand, um, at the end of the day, you've got to look yourself in the mirror the next day and say I did the right thing rather than I just succumbed yeah. to promises or threats. What was the copyright private members bill? So that bill was all about really getting more money for musicians. Uh, who are, you know, have been struggling greatly through the COVID period because of the lack of live work for mm. them. 
And it turned the attention, I think, of a lot of people onto the money that musicians get these days from their recorded music through streaming. That's the way most people listen to music these yeah. days on Spotify and so on. Uh, and, um, you know, when you look into it, you realise just how little of the money that's being generated by that is actually getting into the pockets of the people who write the songs and record and perform on the songs. And so what my bill was doing was trying to rectify that in part by ensuring that there was a guaranteed payment as there is, you know, on the radio, if you're, you know, if you're on Radio yeah. 2 or something, you know, when your music gets played, you should get paid because lots of people were getting paid hardly anything or in many cases, nothing at all if they're on old contracts. So it would have been a, a change in copyright law to, to make that happen. Uh, although it didn't get into law, it did trigger a lot of work in government that is ongoing. Uh, and so, you know, watch this space about that. It's still a very, very live mm. debate in the music industry and in Parliament. Good. Um, a little known, well, I think is a little known, Stevie Wonder track next. Tell me about Looking for Another Pure Love. It's from, um, you know, one of his sort of breakthrough albums in the early 70s and that incredible run he had. It's from Talking Book, uh, an album he made, a lot of which uh, features Jeff Beck. And I've always just loved this particular track. I could have chosen Superstition. I could have chosen You Are the Sunshine of My Life from that album or any other Stevie Wonder track. But I just, I just love this track. I love the enthusiasm Stevie shows for Jeff Beck's incredibly subtle guitar solo on it. And it's just a beautiful track. You describe Gilbert O'Sullivan as underrated. Now that man there's a genius. Stevie Wonder, you know, what a genius could play. You know, any instrument that washed up on the beach, you mm. know, just incredible. And, you know, brilliant songwriter, uh, a brilliant singer and, uh, you know, just superlatives, you know, just can't be enough to describe his absolute brilliance and that run of albums that he mm. had in the, in the 70s right through the songs in the key of life, um, you know, just completely sound as fresh as they were made today. Your next choice, uh, Kevin, is a Carly Simon song that um, has inspired a generation of curiosity as to who it's about. Uh, tell me about this particular track you've chosen. Yes, I wanted to, you know, pick, because uh, one of the sort of female singer-songwriters of the early 70s, I was a big fan of Carole King and of Joni Mitchell, partly through my elder sisters who sort of had those albums when, uh, uh, when I was uh, growing up at home, and uh, also Carly Simon. And I, I, I could have chosen, you know, something by, by Joni, for example, who I was lucky enough to see uh, as a teenager in 1974, but I chose this song because... Um, I loved Carly Simon and I introduced it to some of my younger MP friends, you know, who were in their 30s, um, you know, when we've been hanging out, you know, sometimes waiting for a late night vote, maybe playing some music in an office. And uh, um, it's become a sort of an anthem for it. They absolutely love this, uh, this track. Uh, and so I think it's amazing that it can still have the same appeal 50 years later. And Carly Simon, you know, was that slightly folky kind of, singer and so they brought her over to London to record this to to give it the British pop feed uh, sort of feel to it and mm. uh, if you listen carefully you can hear Mick Jagger singing backing vocals with her which must have been like you know two people looking in a mirror yeah. <laughs> when they were singing backing <laughs> vocals together around a microphone he was just a, apparently he was just there in the studio it wasn't he was planned. just there and that was what it was like in those days and, and he came and sang the, the backing vocals but it's an absolute you know 
banger of a hit and also you know a, a very original theme for a for a song and it mm. doesn't really matter who it's about i think it's about several people apparently but it's an absolute cracker You're listening to another edition of Radio Glamorgan's Music Was My First Love with a member of Parliament for Cardiff West, Kevin Brennan, choosing ten of his favourite tracks. I'm an alligator I'm a mama, papa coming for you I'm a space invader One fateful day in 1972, my good friend Terry Bannon took me to his family's council house in South Cumbran and... Uh, he had an older brother who just acquired a copy of the new David Bowie album, The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. And he dropped the needle onto the vinyl uh, and played the record. And from the opening drum beat on five years to rock and roll suicide at the end, we listened through and it changed my life and changed my haircut. <laughs> and uh, that track we just listened to, Moon Age Daydream, um, uh, was... An outstanding, you know, album cut, never a single, but with the incredible guitar playing yeah. of Mick Ronson, you know, in the outro, which has got to be one of the greatest outros in the history of uh, of rock music, as well as one of the, the great uh, recorded guitar solos. Uh, uh, but an absolute brilliant album from start to finish. And the whole image, obviously, of, of, of David Bowie had a big impact on a you know, 12-year-old boy from Cumbran, and I, I think I did actually have the first um, David Bowie haircut in Cumbran, which I, I was very proud of as I walked around uh, the streets of the town centre. So as a as a frustrated rocker, um, how did MP4 come about? It's quite interesting. When I was elected to the House of Commons in 2001, um, one of uh, the newly elected MPs was a guy called Pete Wishart, who for many years was the keyboard player for the Scottish band Runrig, who you know were mm -hmm. huge. They they'd yeah. been on top of the pops. They, you know, played at uh, vast stages at uh, festivals around the world. And he was talking to a Labour colleague of mine, Ian Causey, who played semi-pro for many years in in bands. And they were discussing whether perhaps for the first time in history the skills might exist amongst MPs to form a rock band and uh, I think Ian concluded well we'll never find a drummer <laughs> and as they were talking about that uh, a Tory MP called Greg Knight walked past and said if you're looking for a drummer I'm your man <laughs> and it turned out that Greg had played as a young man in soul bands in the, in the 70s again sort of semi-pro yeah. uh, and I got to hear about this and uh, said well you, you, know, you can't have you can't possibly have a, a band that's keyboards drums and bass you need a guitar player and a, another singer and so that's that's how MP4 was born and um, you know we we still exist. Uh, one of our number, Ian, is no longer an MP, but we felt it was a bit harsh if we threw him out of the band when he lost his seat. So uh, that's <laughs> he, a, he remains a member of of MP4. That's a bit um, like the the bootleg Beatles who kicked out their equivalent of John Lennon when he died. That, yeah, well, <laughs> exactly. I mean, the police weren't police, were they? So he doesn't have to be an MP to be yeah, an MP4. Yeah. And um, uh, but we we are still going. We we remain legends in our own imaginations. <laughs> uh, but but over the years we've um, you know done done a, a lot of live stuff. Have done some recordings as we may hear later, and also uh, you know I've, I've tried to do some some good and raise some money for charity. Yeah. Uh, next up, uh, your seventh choice, a lady being chosen not for the first time on this fifth series of music it was my first love, Nina Simone. Tell me about I put a spell on you. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, Nina Simone is the definition of an artist, you know, an extraordinary musician, an extraordinary singer and utterly committed, you know, to her art. She was also a very political figure, but she just has that capacity to take a song and totally make it her own and transform it into something else. And in its original um, form, this song almost is a kind of jokey, spooky kind of song. She turns it into an extraordinarily powerful, um, you know, statement of obsessive love. And uh, if this doesn't put the frighteners up you, nothing will. I must tell you, when I started uh, with Radio Glamorgan in 2018, my older brother put me onto a lot of music by people I'd heard of, but I didn't really, I'd never really listened to them. And I don't think a month goes by that I'm not playing um, one of her songs. Just, yeah, she's an incredible artist. It doesn't surprise me. And the variety of uh, performances that she gives on, on different songs, as you say, an extraordinary artist. Great piano player, too. Yeah. You know, she was classically trained, uh, as were people like Roberta Flack, you know, and, and sort of just this wonderful, uh, uh, you know, pianist, uh, but powerful, powerful interpreter of songs. You're listening to Music Was My First Love with Welsh-born MP Kevin Brennan choosing 10 of his favourite songs. Um, how in uh, 2010 did Guitars for Prisoners come about? Well, I was asked because I was running a group in Parliament at the time that was sort of, you know, promoting... British folk music, British and Irish folk music. And um, I was asked to present an award at the Radio 2 Folk Awards at the Royal Albert Hall and made a little speech about the, the group. And I got a letter afterwards from a prisoner um, who said, listen to you on the radio, did you know that the government are um, taking our guitars away from us? And, and it, it turned out that um, you know, if you were on good behaviour, obviously in prison, you're entitled to certain privileges and, and and one of the great things music can do obviously is to allow you to express yourself and you know get get anger out of your system and get your problems off mm. your mind um, but some new rules that were being brought in by the justice secretary at the time chris grayling were had decided that guitars were too dangerous for prisoners particularly because they had steel strings to have in their cells even if they were low risk you know prisoners and there was mm. no assessment of a security risk at all. So I took this issue up and um, got Billy Bragg involved and um, some other campaigners and we managed to, to get the decision overturned. We went to meet with um, Jeremy Wright, who was the junior justice minister at the time. Uh, and I always remember afterwards um, Billy asking me, well, how do you think that meeting went? And I said, um, oh, they'll change their policy in, in a couple of weeks' time. You know, don't worry, it'll, it'll happen. He said, how do you know that? I said, because during the meeting, you being the, you know, the pop star in the room, everybody was focused on you. Meanwhile, I was looking over the minister's shoulder and reading his notes. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why I'm the politician who likes music and you're the musician who likes politics. Oh, you know, that's brilliant. There's a difference between us. <laughs> uh, so we managed to get that overturned, uh, you know, quite rightly. It was a ludicrous uh, yeah. thing and um, uh, that's how that campaign came about and and you mentioned Billy Bag, um, and I picked up also Johnny Marr was involved was it was it difficult I mean once Billy Bragg's involved I guess it's easy to get other musicians to put their names to it 
Yes, I mean, you, musicians are, are genuinely, genuinely interested in politics, but not usually in a party political way. But if you, if you gain their trust because you're genuinely interested in music and what you're about is bringing a change for the better, you know, to try and, in this case, to, mm. you know, to, to try and do something to improve justice and actually to improve the possibility of the rehabilitation of prisoners so when they come out they're less of a problem for society um you know that that they, they they're prepared to get involved in those sorts of campaigns so they, they 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 may initially regard you as a politician with suspicion but once they see you're not just in it just to uh, you know hang about with famous people but you want to actually use you can use their celebrity to bring about things they believe in then um, they're more likely to get involved who is Anna Neal? So um, Anna Neal is a, a, a brilliant singer-songwriter, musician, who I've got to know over the years through the work I've done in music. And I think she's one of those people who ought to have, you know, been much more famous. Uh, she, she made an album a, a, a few years back, the title track of which is what's coming up next. It's called Wide Sky which is, in my opinion, in terms of quality of songwriting and, you know, brilliant musicianship and production, is right up there with, you know, the best of the best, you know, including people like Kate Bush and so on. And mm. that sounds like very high praise, but she's a brilliant songwriter uh, and singer. Uh, and I just think that from time to time, you know, we ought to feature some of the lesser well-known but brilliant musicians that we have uh, in the UK uh, I've written a song with Anna and my, myself, you know, worked with her. I know what a great musician she is. Uh, and I love this track because it just enables you to sort of float in space and enjoy the vibe uh, on, a, on a beautiful evening of this track. Feel I'm following down this white sky. Music was my first love on Radio Glamorgan. Yes, I, you know, I think you can, but she's a, she's a wonderful artist in yeah. her own right, Anna, and I recommend people look her up. She's on um, you know, Spotify and all streaming services. I never thought I'd say this to um, a male MP, but can we talk fashion? Um, what was <laughs> Dress Town Thursday? Ah, right, I think this goes <laughs> down to, back to my early days in the House of Commons. We, there's a session on a Thursday in the House of Commons called Business Questions where you can ask about pretty much anything. So it's quite a useful session if you have a particular issue you want to raise that week. And one particular uh, week I didn't, uh, I didn't have anything I needed to raise. And uh, uh, Robin Cook, who was, who was a very, the late Robin Cook, mm. who was a very funny guy, was leader of the house at the time. So I thought I'd, uh, I'd be guaranteed a, a little spot on, you know, today in Parliament on the radio if I, mm. if I asked an amusing question. So I jokingly asked the question about whether we could have institute a dress down Thursday in the in the House of Commons because it was becoming a fashion in offices around the country, yeah. and it sort of it took off a little bit as a as a story. And uh, for a while, I was worried that people might never forget it. And I suppose you asking me about it proves <laughs> <laughs> that was true. Because uh, um, of course, uh, Thursday week, is your Friday, isn't it? Correct. In yeah. a way that we we're rarely there on a Friday. We are sometimes, but we're usually back in the constituency on a Friday. But um, the next week, I, 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 he, Robin Cook said to me, you know, well, I look forward to, good idea, I look forward to seeing what you'll wear next week. So the next week I turned up without a tie on and uh, asked a question and was uh, immediately sort of jumped upon by um, traditionalist Tories who didn't like the idea of anyone not wearing a tie. Um, but um, 
Uh, it's actually uh, sort of come back a bit now wearing a tie. Uh, John Burko had said MPs didn't have to do it, but the, the current speaker, except for the recent heat wave, yeah. uh, is quite strict about jacket and ties in the chamber. Could we talk a little bit uh, about your friend, the late fellow MP Joe Cox? Uh, what was she like? Because there seemed, at the time of the horrific death, to be genuine and sincere tributes from all sides of the House. Yes, and you can't make that sort of thing up. The reason why they were genuine and, and sincere and came across in that way was because she was exactly as described. Um, she was a relatively new MP, uh, and, and I got to know her, you know, briefly during the period when she was an MP. And she made a, she was a small, petite person who made a big impact because she had a lot of experience uh, in the third sector, working in the charitable sector and so on. And genuinely was uh, someone who believed in you know positive social change and the ability of working together in politics. And of course, famously, she said, "There's more than that unites us than divides yeah. us." And I will never forget that terrible day. You know, um, it was actually I was with a friend of mine who's a fellow MP, watching the Wales England football match uh, at the uh, Euros 2016, and it was on that day um, <clears throat> that she was murdered. And it, it was a, a terrible, shocking thing um, that I think, you know, it's very, very difficult to even process now that someone could carry out such a terrible act. But she's left a great legacy. In fact, at the time, we, we made a, a charity record with the band and other MPs and a, a choir and some celebrity singers like Katie Tunstall um, uh, and Steve Harley from Cockney Rebel mm -hmm. and... You know, Ricky Wilson, David Gray, David Gray who, who sang on a, on a track with us that we, we and, and managed to raise some money for her charities. But um, she was a wonderful person. And the Stones, uh, you, you recorded You Can't Always Get What You Want, and the Stones waived their royalties for the Joe Cox Foundation. So feeling towards her death did reach far and wide, didn't it? Yes, they did, you know, and, and they weren't known for that, <laughs> for being um, ready, too ready to uh, waive their royalties, uh, as, as, um, as the Verve found out with um, Bittersweet Symphony, but yeah. they, do now get, they do now get the money for that, in fairness. They've, they've mellowed in their, in their old age, I think. The one final question about this, that the way in which Joe Cox died, as I said, touched a lot of people, um, but with the death in October 2021 of David Amos which was, what, five and a half years later, has much changed to protect our MPs? There have been some changes, some of which obviously are not uh, to publicly discussed sure. because they're yeah. about security. Of course, uh, you know, there have been other incidents. Uh, my colleague Stephen Timms was, was stabbed mm -hmm. at one of his surgeries and could easily have died, you know, a few years earlier. And it's this terrible dilemma, all of us as members of Parliament, and I count, you know, all parties in this, you know, really come into politics, I think, initially for the right reasons, and they want to be accessible to their constituents. And one of the great features of our democracy, whatever its failings, are that MPs you know, genuinely try to be available to their constituents in their constituencies. Uh, but, of course, in the world we live in now, and after the, these two terrible murders in the last five years, there's been a lot of soul-searching and, and thinking about how do we maintain accessibility as much as possible whilst keeping people safe and it's not just MPs it's members of staff a, a, a Lib Dem MPs member of staff was killed in a surgery some years earlier and by its nature you know MPs do attract people sometimes who you know are, are, may not be in the best state in terms of their mental health and mm -hmm. so on and then there are extremists 
you know, who want to undermine democracy. So uh, it's a very, very difficult question. And all of us have been you know, looking at it again. Obviously, COVID has meant there have been fewer surgeries and in-person surgeries have sometimes you know, gone away, but they are gradually coming back. And we're all taking, trying to take measures that keep us accessible, but also safe. And, and sadly, and, and forgive me if I'm wrong, but with Joe Cox and with David Amos, they weren't killed in their surgeries, were they? Well, David was. Right, okay. Um, Joe was killed going about her duties, you know, in, in her constituency. Right, okay. Um, Stephen Timms was attacked in surgery. Yeah. So, it, you know, it, it, it's basically MPs, you know, are often out and about in their constituencies, mingling with the public. We don't have security protection unless you're, you know, the Prime Minister or somebody mm. like that. Uh, and, um, you know, it, it's, it's a, a risk of the job, but obviously you have to do your best to stay safe. Tell me about your penultimate choice uh, from Steve Earle. Yeah, I'm a, a huge Steve Earle fan. He's one of those, uh, you know, country music troubadours uh, who've been right down to the to the bottom and come back again and cleaned up his act. He's an absolutely brilliant and prolific songwriter, possibly best known in the Britain for the song that the Proclaimers um, covered on their Sunshine and Leith album, My Old Friend, The Blues. But... Um, you know, I recommend his back catalogue to anybody who's a fan of country and rock music and great storytelling, songwriting. And I chose this track because I wanted to reflect a little bit also my uh, Irish heritage. And Steve is a big fan of Irish music and uh, he wrote this song during one of the spells he had living in Ireland. And it's a great, you know, joyful um, song which has that sort of folky country Irish feel to it, which uh, you can't help but tap your toe to and get a smile on your face. I bet that's great in, uh, in Dublin, in, in an Irish pub, uh, on the, oh, yeah. on the yeah. jukebox after a few Guinnesses. It, it, it certainly is. Um, I, I've had the great good fortune and pleasure of meeting still steve Earle a few times and ironically he is now completely clean because he did get right down in the in the gutter literally right. you know on on addiction for you know drugs and alcohol yeah. and uh, uh he did express some concern that the uh the, the sharon shannon sort of version of it was used without his permission on a an advert for cider for Magnus <laughs> side and felt it was ironic since he hadn't had a drink for 25 years but it, it just is one of those songs that you're absolutely right you know a couple of pints of Guinness and you'd be up jigging with the rest of them on the table probably Kevin I want to ask you a question uh, that I asked Leanne Wood back in 2020 the only other politician we've had on this series when uh, you touched on this earlier when someone goes into politics I presume they do it for the right reasons because they have an interest in politics and because they want to make a difference and help their constituents but to hold high office, uh, leader of a party, foreign secretary, chancellor, prime minister, first minister, you have to, I guess, have an ego. But is it about how you control that ego? I suppose, you know, all politicians have to have some kind of an ego to put themselves forward for election. Um, and that probably means, um, you know, it might be, some people might say that's probably probably a good reason why they shouldn't be elected yeah. if, it, if huh. they've got if they've got an, an ego, but it, it comes with the territory. When it gets out of control, a la, you know, Donald Trump and, dare I say, you know, Boris Johnson, I think it becomes a problem. But obviously you are there to provide some kind of leadership to your community, so you do have to put yourself forward. 
But as long as you do it for the right reasons and for your constituents, the late great Rodri Morgan, he wasn't a man of great ego, but was a, you know, uh, nevertheless uh, a great leader, I think taught me a lesson early on when I worked for him, when I used to listen to him, if he was ringing up somebody on behalf of a constituent, and he might be ringing up, you know, the head of a company or somebody important in the civil service. And he always used to say, it's Rodri Morgan here, Member of Parliament. He didn't say MP, he'd say quite slowly and deliberately, Member of Parliament. And that's what you have to remember. Those le- the, you know, that title mm. is there in order that people listen to what you have to say on behalf of your constituents. And my father and mother, I think, taught me a lot about politics, sort of almost inadvertently. My father used to have a saying, help the weak against the strong, love the old when you're young, own a fault when you're wrong, when you're angry, um, hold your tongue, stand your round and sing a song, and don't forget where you come from. Mm. And, and I think that's as good a philosophy for politics as any to try and remember. And in the case of my mother, when I was elected to Cardiff City Council, I took her to the City Hall, which is a grand place for anyone who's visited it, with a wonderful marble hall with the statues upstairs. And I showed it to her, and she'd you know, been a cleaner for uh, the council in Torvine. And I showed her the grand City Hall's marble hall, and she took one look at it and said, imagine having to clean this. Mm. And I thought, uh, if you remember that as well in politics, uh, you know, and that's perhaps what was forgotten during the number 10 parties and so on by the stories we've heard in the press. Somebody's got to clean up at the end of the day after you, and they're probably the person who's getting paid the least in the building and doing the most important job. And so put your ego aside, even though we've all got it, and remember that, and uh, you won't go too far wrong in politics. We started this edition of music, was my first love, with a track from your solo album, and last up you picked something from uh, MP4. Yeah, speaking of ego, I've bookended. <laughs> <laughs> I've bookended this list with songs that I've written, um, but uh, I did listen to one of your other episodes with Marty Wilde, and he put one of his own songs in. Yeah, so I he thought, did. If, yeah. <laughs> if Marty Wilde can do it, who incidentally was the best man at my cousin's wedding back uh-huh. in the sixties, uh, my my cousin Pat, she got from Fairwater, she got married, and and and, and her husband um it didn't last unfortunately the marriage but was uh, was uh, was marty wilde well, I can, some wonderful photographs i can tell you that Susie quattro did the same ah she well there we are then yes. <laughs> we're in we're in i'm in good company <laughs> but um uh this this is a, a track by mp4 and you know again we've we've done a few recordings over the years all of which are on the usual services and we did this track i wrote it with um, a guy called Simon Darlow, who actually wrote Slave to the Rhythm, or was one of the writers of Slave to the Rhythm, the, the great Grace Jones track, mm. who is a friend of mine, and I went up to his place once in Oxfordshire, and we decided to write this song. And the idea I had for the song was, you know when you're walking down the street and you see a homeless person, but you kind of avert your gaze from them, you try not to look them in the eye, you see them in the corner of your eye, and they know you see them, but you don't actually make eye contact and uh, I wanted to write a song from the perspective of that homeless person uh, because you know we were we were doing some work with crisis the homeless charity and so this song uh, was the result and it was a, a single by mp4 and it's called do you see me two final questions since your time in parliament is there one thing that you're most proud of um I suppose um you know down the years, there's a number of things I've been able to do, one of which, early on in Parliament, uh, 
was to change, help change the law uh, to enable people who had adopted, you know, had had their children adopted, to be able to to, to make contact um, with their uh, through an intermediary with their with their, the child that had been adopted. It came out of some casework I'd done for for Rodri Morgan, and it's that sort of little change that you can make that really impact upon people's lives. Uh, they're important. There's a number of things like that down the years I've been able to do, and they're, in a way, as important as the great issues of state that we hear about on the news. Um, Personally and professionally, musically and politically, what does the future hold for you? So I'm, as you said at the outset, a member of the uh, Culture, Digital Culture, Media and Sports Select Committee, so I'm doing a lot of work this part on the Select Committee. I took a deliberate decision to you know, work through the select committee cross-party system rather than to stay on the front bench, which I'd been on for 15 years, both in government and out of government. Uh, and, of course, we are going to have another election in the in, in the next couple of years, and I'm very much hoping, obviously, people won't be surprised to know that there's a change of government that Labour's back in power and um, that we can, you know, try and do something to clear up the, the very big mess that we're in at the moment as a country. I've much enjoyed the last hour or so. Kevin Brennan MP, thank you very, very much. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Music Was My First Love on Radio Glamorgan, where Cardiff West MP Kevin Brennan has been choosing 10 of his favourite songs. I'm Andrew Wolfe, and join me again soon when someone else chooses 10 of their favourite tracks on another edition of Music Was My First Love. Music of the few